this very thing to you over and over again every time we study I've been telling you no matter where we are here there's a difference in lifestyles that our author is concerned that we understand between living under the law and living by grace and I want us to see that contrast again here at the end of chapter 12 because it's fitting because the author has told us to continue this marathon race we're on. Now remember, the marathon race is a race of grace. It's living a lifestyle of grace and truth from the time that by grace through faith you were born of God. You were saved. Until by grace through faith you enter into His kingdom in heaven long race. And it's all by grace through faith. Now Paul has talked about this frequently in his letters. Uh, most notable for me at least is in Colossians when he tells those folks at that church in the city of Colossae. He says, As you therefore receive Christ Jesus your Lord. Now, how did you receive Christ Jesus your Lord? It was by grace through your faith. So, walk ye in Him. In other words, that's how you live your life. In the same way that you were born of the Spirit, in the same way that you became a Christian, a believer, that you were born again, in that same exact way you are to walk out your daily lifestyle. And we're trying to figure out what that means, what it looks like. So our author is helping us here, giving us this contrast all the way through Hebrews. And I believe that because our author really is the Apostle Paul writing anonymously. And so that's why it fits with all his other letters. But his point is that we are to continue to live out our lives by grace through faith, as opposed to a lifestyle which is natural to us of law, rules and regulations, and lies, deception. Those two are radically different. And I really want to emphasize that today in terms of what he describes here as the finish line. All right, we'll put it, put it that way. He's told us, to suck it up and continue on in this marathon race. Even though you run into trials, because all of your trials, no matter what they are, God uses to discipline you, train you, guide you, teach you, and He promises to bring you through them. So the trials, even though they can be intense at times, are for your best. That's why God allows it to happen. If it's not for your best, if you couldn't make it, if it would harm you in some way, God wouldn't allow the trial. And in spite of those trials, our author says here, come on, suck it up and get, a, get back in the race. Get back in the lifestyle of grace and truth. Don't let the trials throw you. Keep on keeping on. One of the most difficult trials we'll ever face. A couple weeks ago, 
Bill Lloyd talked about in his life. But it's the same kind of trial the father faced. Did you know that? When he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross. Now anybody who has lost a child knows what that trial is all about. And I've seen it over my lifetime, over my ministry. I've seen numerous folks who have had to go through that trial. And one thing I've noticed about it is as they went through that trial, grace abounded in their lives. That grace of God that comes with the trial abounded in their lives. So with the trial comes the grace to endure it. So our author says, hey, get back in the race here. Come on, strengthen those arms that hang down. Strengthen those feeble knees. Get back in the race. Make your path straight. What we talked about last time in military terms. Adapt, improvise, and overcome. Get back in this race again. Now having told us that, I want to read these verses to you at the end of the chapter 12. So look what you're going to. Look, look what you're coming to. It's a strong contrast that we need to understand. Verse 18. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart or a spear. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, but you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. I'm going to stop the reading right there. You all see the contrast? There's two mountains here. Two mountains he's talking about. Now the first one is obviously Mount Sinai. In the wilderness. You remember when God miraculously delivered Israel out of Egypt, He brought them to Mount Sinai. And it was there that He gave them the law. So this first mount is a mount of law. And notice how He described it. Pretty graphic language there. If you go back in Deuteronomy and, and other passages in the Pentateuch and the Old Testament, you'll find this was a pretty awesome sight. God actually came down in fire on that mountain. And there was smoke and darkness, and it was commanded, don't ever, don't anyone touch the mountain or you'll die. 
the approach to God on that mountain was blocked, sealed all the way around. And so loud were his commands as he spoke here on earth. The people trembled in fear, fell on their face. He said, Moses, we can't take it anymore. Even Moses, the spokesman for the people, the one who led them out of Egypt, said he was terrified. He was shaken. That's a horrendous sight. Now, that is all a description, and I want to put it in perspective for you. That's all a perspective for a description of the God most people know. You know that? It's one to be afraid of. One that will scare you. One that is all-powerful and all-consuming. That's the mentality, naturally, people have. Did you know that? Of God. Now, your, your view of God is also shaped by the relationship with your earthly father. I know that. Psychologically, your earthly father has a tendency to shape your image of God. But beyond that, at a deeper level, your image of God naturally is the image that's described here in that first mountain. You're afraid of it. This is one of the biggest reasons people don't want to hear God. Did you know that? They don't want to hear from God. They don't even want to listen because they might hear from God. You know why they don't want to hear from God? They're afraid of Him. They're afraid He's going to tell them to do something they don't want to do. Or to quit doing something they really like to do. That's the God of Mount Sinai. And that's the image at the base level of all human beings of God. They're scared. Why do you suppose that heathen cultures, for as long as mankind has been in existence, why do you suppose they devise elaborate religious systems to try to appease the gods, whatever kind they are? And it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what point in history. That's the plight of mankind, trying to figure out how to please the gods. Why? Because this image, the God at Mount Sinai, is a fearsome God. And one to be greatly feared and terrified, one that you cannot approach or you die. Now, in strong contrast to, to that mount, I want you to think of another mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. What does that mean? Well, you know the story. How Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and I don't suppose he took them because they were his favorites. I suppose he took them because he couldn't trust them if he left them behind. He took them with him up on the mountain. And there he prayed. 
and was miraculously transfigured so that he began to radiate light from his very person. And so glorious was that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John naturally said, well, let's build some tents here. Let's, let's hang out here. That's a good place to stay. They were comfortable with it. They wanted to be there. They enjoyed it. It was thrilling to them because not only was Jesus transfigured before them, but Moses and Elijah appeared to them on that mountain as well. And they said, oh man, this is heaven. This is it. Let's stay here. We got it. Don't want to go anywhere. And they heard that voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, the contrast between those two mountains is amazing. One is a terror, threatening, and the other is of peace and rejoicing. So this is what our author is describing here when he says, you are not come to this Mount Sinai, but you are come to the city of the living God, the Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is, is named particularly on earth at a place where David established his city in the first tabernacle in Jerusalem, the city of peace. And so it's, it's Jewish language for you come to heaven, really. And he goes on to describe that in a marvelous way. We're not going to take the time to go into detail of it. But he says, particularly, you have come. Now notice, this is not you're going to. Okay, we know we're all on the way. But he says, this is the end result. You come to the city of God, the city of the living God. You come to innumerable angelic hosts. You come to a joint celebration between heavenly beings and earthly beings. What are they celebrating? They are celebrating the victory of Jesus which made you acceptable to God. That's what they're rejoicing. The church of the firstborn, the spirits of just men made perfect. You come to the fact that you can't possibly lose. So the one is law, the other is grace. Now to give you a little more practical contrast, and this is glorious, I, mean, I don't mean to detract from this description here in Hebrews at all, because it, it bears your time and energy studying it. But to give you a little more practical description of it, I'm going to speak of this contrast as did Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in Gentile language, non-Jewish language. In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us a similar contrast to this. He said, We are not sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency for everything we need comes from God. That's the first contract, contrast. 
Under the law, you're self-sufficient. Under, under grace, you are God-sufficient. He's the one that supplies everything you need. Under law, you're the one that has to do it. And then he goes on to give us a description in the next verse when he says, For you have been made able ministers. Did you all know that? Yeah, you're all ministers, every one of you. You're servants, which is minister, servant, that's a polite way of saying you're slaves to God. You've been made able ministers of the new covenant. Remember what we studied back in chapter 7, 8, 9 about the new covenant? You're made able ministers of the new covenant. That's a covenant of grace. Not a covenant of law. I get tickled at, well, tickle's not really the right word. I get infuriated by these people that purport to be a minister of God. And what they do is they set themselves up as a judge of your behavior and decide if you're doing what's right or doing what's wrong. And they're very quick to tell you that you're doing what's wrong. And not only tell you that you're doing something wrong, but they'll also tell you what you're gonna, what's going to happen to you because you're doing something wrong. In other words, they're judging you. You see, that's not the kind of ministry that you've been called to. I've heard preachers say, oh, we got a duty to preach against sin. You don't have a duty to preach against sin. You have a duty to preach the gospel. Amen. Amen. It's not preaching against anything. It's preaching for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not negative. It's positive. Always positive. The law is always negative. Grace, always positive. Your able ministers of the new covenant. Now you all know the difference between new and old covenant. We've, we've gone over that over and over again. The old covenant was established at Mount Sinai. It was established at that first mountain. That's what it was all about. God made a covenant that said, if you behave yourself and do what I tell you to do, I'll bless you. But if you don't, I'm going to curse you. Old covenant. A covenant of law. How do you know whether you behave yourself or not? You kept the Ten Commandments, all the statutes and the ordinance of the law. And so you would judge whether or not you were behaving yourself according to your ability to meet the standards of the law. Yeah, there was a whole generation of people who thought they did. They said, oh yeah, I've kept the law. Mm -hmm. Especially in Jesus' day, I love it. When they, they presented to him or tried to tell him how faithful they were to God and how they kept the law while they were denying God's only son. Something's wrong there. But under that old covenant, it's up to you. You have to keep the law. The new covenant is radically different. The new covenant is a covenant of grace whereby God says, I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to write my law in your hearts. I'm going to make you behave according to my law. 
I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm going to talk personally and directly to you. And your sins and iniquities and I'll remember no more because I've made you a brand new person that does not sin. Covenant of grace, covenant of law. Now the really interesting part about that discussion that Paul leads in 2 Corinthians 3 is how he makes this contrast between law and grace. Law, he says, is represented by one word, the letter. One term. He calls it the letter. Now, he's not talking about the little tiny details of the law like we think of when we say, well, the letter of the law, you've got to keep the letter. It's all the little minor, uh, small print details. No. That's not what he means by letter. The letter is far more common than we realize. The letter of the law, or not the details of the law, but your own interpretation of what that law means. Your interpretation. That's the letter of the law. And it's easy to mess it up. Did you know that? In fact, Jesus got on to the Pharisees for that, didn't he? He said, you think you understand this law. Thou shalt not murder. But I'm telling you, just because you haven't killed anybody doesn't mean you kept that law. Because if you harbor hatred in your heart towards another, you have murdered them already. Our letter is totally different than the true meaning of the law. Same thing with adultery. He said, just because you haven't jumped on your neighbor's wife doesn't mean you haven't committed adultery. No. Not at all. If you have lust in your heart towards another, you've committed adultery already. See, Jesus moved it from the external, where our letter is, to the internal. And proved how difficult it was. You can't keep the law. But to people who thought they could, he said what he said in Matthew chapter 5, in the last verse of that chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, he told the people who thought they were keeping the law, you be perfect as the Father is perfect. That doesn't mean don't screw up from now on. It means never screw up. Ever can't do that. It's too late. That's why we need a covenant of grace. So in strong contrast to this letter under the law system, us running around every day with our own knowledge and understanding of good and evil. Remember that apple in the garden, that fruit in the garden? It was knowledge of good and evil. We run around with our own knowledge of good and evil judging what other people are doing, comparing ourselves, living under the law, we die. The letter kills, she says. But in contrast to that, living under grace, you have something far better. You have something more miraculous. You have the Spirit. You're either going to live by your own knowledge of right and wrong, your own understanding of what you should or shouldn't do, or you're going to live by the Spirit of God. 
And the beauty of it is, He has given each of you His Spirit living inside of you to teach you, to guide you into all truth, to remind you, to comfort you, to empower you. So are we going to live under the law in our own efforts and performance? Or are we going to live under grace through the Spirit? So you can't live under the law. You can only die under the law. The letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. That's the true life that we can now live because we have the Spirit guiding us. You see, I get tickled at how, how easy it is for our, us to fall back under the law when we're living in grace. It is so easy. We do it naturally without even thinking about it. I've spent a great deal of time counseling folks over the years. Folks with pretty serious problems. They've come to me and their initial question is, what should I do? What should I do about my wife? What should I do about my husband? What should I do about my kids? What should I do about my job? What should I do? Do you know what that question tells me immediately? They're under the law. They're living by the law. Because their attention is focused squarely on their own performance. What that question is, what shall I do? Is they're frustrated because their knowledge of good and evil hasn't helped them. It's let them down. And they're trying to figure it out. Even if they Googled it, it didn't help them. What shall I do? It's not a matter of what you do. That puts you under law immediately. It's a matter of what you believe. Amen. It's by faith that we have access into this grace wherein we stand. It's not by your works. It's by what you believe. And in order to answer their problem, they've got to first learn to trust God. Trust Him in two areas. Number one, trust Him concerning the new person He's made you to be. That eliminates fear. Did you know that? Yeah, it does. When you trust God and His Word to, and you take Him at His Word, there's no way you can lose. Because all things work together for your good. There is no way that you can possibly lose in any situation. No matter how bad it may look. That eliminates fear. That simple faith in who God has made you to be. His beloved child in whom He is well pleased eliminates fear. And it allows you 
to experience the fullness of hope. That faith naturally leads to a joyful, confident expectation about your future. You know you're going to be okay. Why? Because you trusted God and who He said He made you to be. Was Jesus a loser? Well, there were occasional times when He looked like a loser, especially when He hung on the cross. But He wasn't a loser. He was a victor. And He has made you more than a conqueror. You can't lose. That's the hope we have that frees us from that self-centered focus on what we're going to do to save ourselves. We're free from that to actually be able to care about and love other people. That's a lifestyle of grace. A lifestyle of grace is you're trusting God and filled with the hope that you know you're going to be okay so you can actually care about somebody else. You can actually love other people. Now, as the author of Hebrews puts it here, you can't lose. There is no way. Because you've not come to that Mount Sinai, okay, the wilderness, to the law. You've come to grace. And by grace, you are saved from the guilt and penalty of your sin. By grace, you are saved from the very habit and dominion of your unbelief throughout your lifetime. And by grace, you will be saved from the very presence of sin as you enter into that mount, that new mount, the city of God. So he gives us really a message of rejoicing and hope. And that's what this celebration is all about when we come to this mountain. What's it all about? It's all about the fact that you win. So let me give you this, just the final words here in the, in the Hebrew language. Talking to Jews. He says, verse 24, we come, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. He's the one that makes it happen. And to the blood of sprinkling, the fact that He has cleansed us, that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried from the ground for revenge against his murder. This blood of the sprinkling is the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses you from all sin. So the closing verses of this chapter, because of that, because we're living in grace, not under the law, he says, see that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him to speak on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. What he's saying in, in, in essence, even though it's put in somewhat harsh terms here, is don't politely excuse yourself from listening to God, the one who's speaking to you. Remember how we started back in chapter 1? God has in these last days spoken to us through His Son. And He's continuing to speak to you through His Spirit. Don't politely excuse yourself from that conversation 
Because when you excuse yourself from that conversation, you go back under law. It's up to you. So he warns us against that. He says, don't politely excuse yourself. Try to get away, but give heed to it. But then he talks about this word that's being spoken about shaking. He said the word that was spoken by God at Mount Sinai shook that whole mountain, earthquake. The word spoken by God through Jesus not only shakes the physical world, but also the entire spiritual realm. What's he shaking it about? He's announcing the unfolding of his plan of grace. That's what's shaking every man-made system to save ourselves. We'll fall apart. Everyone. Every effort on our part to save ourselves is shaken to the core. Because the only way we can be saved is by grace through faith. Finally, he says our God is a consuming fire. A better translation of that is God's jealousy over you is as a fiery ball. That's, he's jealous of you. He loves you. He's done everything to make you okay. And he's jealous that you understand that. And it's just like a consuming fire. So we thank you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you, Lord, that you are continuing yet today to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. What we've never been able to do for ourselves. I thank you for the privilege we have of living in that grace. Lord, I ask you to continue to remind us, continue to warn us when we fall from that grace, when we slip naturally back into that old lifestyle of law and lies. I ask you, Lord, to remind us, teach us through your spirit as only you can do. And I praise you for that glorious grace that we'll know one day as we finish this race. That grace that causes us to be entirely united as one. One with your son Jesus and one with each other. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Appreciate you all being here and during the cold. Grace be multiplied to you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.